It's uh, Psalm 119, 33 to 40. Teach me your decrees, O Lord. I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will obey your instructions. I will put them into practice with all my heart. Make me walk along the path of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. Give me an eagerness for your laws rather than a love of money. Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. Reassure me of your promise made to those who fear you. Help me abandon my shameful ways, for your regulations are good. I long to obey your commandments. Renew my life with your goodness. Okay, I'm going to try to do the slides, Amber. I'll let you know if it doesn't work. Um, okay, so last week I wildly miscalculated either, one, the influence of the movie The Ten Commandments from 1956, or two, the average age of our church, um, or maybe some combination of both, because I've since learned that the movie The Ten Commandments from 1956, starring Charleston Heston, that I thought everyone had heard of, is not as culturally prominent as maybe I had thought. And as it turns out, it's not just Holly, but uh, not even a few of you, but actually several of you who had no idea what I was talking about last Sunday when I introduced the movie The Ten Commandments. Um, <laughs> Mr. Pace is laughing in the back. So this Sunday, I will not be offering any cultural artifact as a catchy introduction or any kind of um, yeah, cult pop culture reference. Instead, I would like to begin um, with what I find to be a rather startling and very telling statistic. According to one estimate, um, approximately 1.81 trillion photos will be taken during the current calendar year of 2023. So you can see the number of zeros it requires to get to 1.81 million or trillion. Um, to break it down further, that means 5 uh, billion photos per day, which comes out to 57,246 per second. And that means in the time that it took me to tell you this statistic, approximately 900,000 photos were taken around the world. That sounds staggering and probably unbelievable. Um, again, estimate, didn't fact check this, found it on the internet, take that for what it's worth. We live in an age of photo. We live in an age of the picture, in an age of the image. Everything can be captured or recorded or communicated through images. We have photographs, of course, but we also have paintings, sculptures, advertisements, logos, icons, and symbols. We watch images on our televisions and in our movies, and a plethora of TikToks, tweets, Instagrams, Facebooks, YouTubes, etc. And all of the digital mediums which algorithmically catalog and curate our images for us. In America, we have selfies. I'm sure they have those around the world as well. But I found out that in, in England, they actually have ussies. So that's where you take a selfie with someone else. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> we look and we view and we watch and we gaze and we become transfixed with our screens, both large and small. But in addition to these literal pictures and images, we also think in images. We dream in images, and we conceptualize our world and our place in it using images. Regardless if you have a photographic memory or not, 
most of the often when we think through something, we're thinking in pictures or images. For example, we all have some notion of a self-image or a public image. Companies have a product or a corporate image. Advertisers help us build up a brand image. To varying degrees, we consider at all times, to varying degrees, more or less, the image we are presenting. Is this good for my image? How will I be seen? We have images in our heads that serve as shortcuts, even, for everyday life. Each of us has some image of what it means to be a man or a woman, a husband or a wife, a father or a mother. Some of those images may be somewhat under attack in our day. We inherit or reject certain images about things like integrity or honesty or faithfulness or responsibility. For better or worse, our stereotypes and our prejudices are even image-based as we adopt certain kinds of images for certain kinds of people, the poor, the wealthy, the powerful, the successful. We have some image of our head even of what it means to be a Christian. And that means, of course, we have all sorts of images that relate to God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, things like sin, judgment, eternal salvation, and its alternative. More than we might imagine, we stop, when we stop to think about it, we realize that images, both real and imagined, tend to influence just about everything we do and even believe. We are awash in images because they are everywhere. They are on our screens, they are on our walls, on our roadways, they are on the sides of our buildings, they are on clothes that we wear, they are in our heads, they form our concepts, they are in the deepest recesses of our psyches where we cannot see them. They help construct our worldview, they compose our dreams, and they are often the most vivid and compelling features of our waking life. After all, an image is worth a thousand words. And if you're familiar with that quote, you'll know that it was an advertising executive who coined that at the beginning of the 20th century. Go figure. Now, full disclosure, I'm not, a, whoa, I'm not opposed to images. I don't think most of you are. I like images. I like photos. I love visual art. I might be a musician, but I really do like visual art, movies, all of those things. It has an important place in our culture, and it certainly brings much into the world that is beautiful, meaningful, and formative for us. But it is so formative, in fact, that perhaps we do well to consider what kind of people we are becoming as the primary way in which we engage with each other, with the natural world, and with our spiritual life, and the very God we worship is through the medium of images. As I hope we'll see this afternoon, there is a reason why God's second commandment to the Israelites on Mount Sinai has to do with graven images. So if you would, turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20, and we are going to read together beginning in verse 1. It's a short passage. We're going to read together through verse 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, or serve them, 
For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So if you recall, last week we began a new series looking at the Ten Commandments. And so by way of reminder, um, or in case you weren't here last Sunday, what we said was rather simple. Number one, we suggested that the Ten Commandments might be better thought of as the Ten Words. Similar to how God spoke creation into being in Genesis chapter 1, these words are creative and life-giving. Number two, that these ten words are God's way of communicating himself to us. About, it was his way of saying something about himself to us. Number three, they are an invitation into both relationship and towards freedom. And four, we stress the importance of the narrative, of the place in which the story of the Ten Commandments takes or happens. And we insisted that this is key, that it takes place after God has rescued the Israelites from Egypt. And the sequence of the story, this story in particular, and the story of salvation in each of our own lives is the same. It is never that we measure up to some standard. It's never that we measure up to some set of obligations and somehow earn or merit God's favor, but rather that God saves us, even when we don't measure up. And in fact, precisely while we are not measuring up. As Paul says to the Roman church, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even now, on this side of Easter, the language we've been using the last couple of weeks, God relates to us the same way. His grace endures, it continues. He remains steadfast in his pursuit of you and your good. And whether you've walked for, with Jesus for 10 years or 10 minutes, God's dealings with you, in some ways, is fundamentally the same. So last week we looked at the Ten Commandments under three headings, or the Ten Words. If you recall, we said we talked about the reality, the relationship, and the role. And we did so mostly through the lens of the First Commandment. Well, I think we're just going to use those same three headings again this week, and probably even next week. And I think there'll be some benefit for us to kind of consider them again in the same way. Um, so these will be our headings this afternoon as well as we turn to the second commandment. But before we do turn to the second commandment, that is, I'd like to say uh, something briefly again about the first commandment or the first word. If you recall, the first word says, have no other gods before me. Now, this word before in the original Hebrew is actually somewhat vague. And some of your translations may have it um, as beside or besides. And biblical scholars seem to agree that the language is purposefully ambiguous. It is meant to convey multiple meanings here. And this will be important for us moving on. But it says, no other gods before me or in front of me, no other gods beside me or alongside me, no other gods besides me or instead of me, and no other gods over against me or in confrontation with me. And so keeping all these senses in mind for us as we kind of move along will be helpful to bring out the full implications of this first word, especially as it will relate to the second word that we'll look at in a moment. And the important thing is the first word or the first commandment is not merely a call to a monotheistic belief system. 
The first word is not saying, thou shall believe in no other gods but me. Rather, the first word assumes the reality of other gods, little g. It assumes other possible centers of gravity, other realities that offer ultimate meaning and value and provide purpose and order for one's life and for the community and for a people. As one scholar has pointed out, these other realities may not take the place of the Lord, may not come before the Lord, may not be set alongside the Lord as objects of equal devotion, may not be placed in conflict with our devotion to the Lord. The first word is not merely about some intellectual assent to a particular set of beliefs concerning a um, way of thinking about gods in general. The first word is about a specific and particular loyalty, allegiance, devotion, and trust in a particular God. Namely, this God, the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is this particular God who redeems and delivers and saves, who deserves our gratitude, trust, and devotion. And so to say it again, the first word is not merely about belief, it is about love and trust. As both Moses and Jesus will summarize for us later, it is about loving the Lord your God with all that you are, with all that you have, and all that you do. Now, of course, someone might say, many of you may be thinking in your heads right now, but Chaz, we live in 2023. We don't believe in other gods anymore. We don't buy all this ancient mumbo-jumbo about multiple deities we're not like the ancient Hebrews or even some of our contemporary Eastern religions. We are modern people in the digital age. We have science, we have medicine, we have technology. We know better. We know that other gods don't exist. So clearly, this first commandment must mean something different for us in our time. And I would simply reply by asking, are you so sure? So turning now to the second word, we are told this. Do not make for yourselves any image or any likeness of any created thing and then bow down and worship it or serve it, depending on how your translation puts it. And the shorthand for this second word might be, do not make for yourself an idol. But what is an idol exactly? One potential answer I would offer is this. It is anything that we place before, beside, besides, or over against the God who rescues redeems, and saves. And so idols are those little g-gods which we supposedly no longer believe in. Now, of course, most of us in this room, I know, will not be like carving out any wood or stone or bronze anytime soon into the form of a cow or a four-headed, eight-legged deity. And I doubt any of us will find ourselves physically bowing down to anything anytime soon. And so it is true. In this way, we are quite distant and quite removed from any ancient and contemporary forms of idol worship. However, I would submit to you, perhaps we make a bit of a mistake if we assume that ancient people or contemporary people actually thought that the physical, material, statues and figures that they bowed down to were actually little gods. As it turns out, most biblical scholars will agree that ancient people knew that the statues themselves were just that, statues. 
And they understood that the statues were somehow symbolic or representational. They knew that the material statues were just mediating a way of interacting with an immaterial God who stood somehow behind the physical object. And if you think about it, it makes sense because any time an idol was destroyed, all they had to do was make another one and then they could just keep on going. So obviously there was some distance between the thing that they bowed before and the actual, the actual reality that they were trying to encounter. And so in this way, I actually think we have much more in common with ancient idol worship than we sometimes like to admit. Here's what I mean. Obviously, none of us in this room will actually believe that the physical, material, tangible reality of money is a god. None of us think that our bank account or the paper dollar in our pocket or the plastic credit card in our wallet, none of us think those are actually a god. None of us think that the home that we live in or the person that we are married to or the children that we raise or the job we work at or the television we watch or the phone in our pocket or even the reflection we see in the mirror each morning. None of us think those are actually gods. And yet, as I'm sure you all are familiar, we often bow down, worship, and serve such realities. And metaphorically speaking, perhaps. That is, that to the extent that we allow such realities to be the center of meaning and value and purpose and significance in our lives, to serve as ultimate reality, we have found ourselves in front of an idol. Now, of course, all of these things are good. They are very good, in fact. In the same way that the rain for crops and the fertility for their children and protection from their enemies were good for ancient people, they needed such things to survive and to flourish. And the same is true for us. You and I need lots of things, good things, very good things, meaningful things, important things to survive and flourish. But the question is what happens when good things, created things, become for us ultimate things. And hopefully the connection with the first commandment is becoming more clear for us. No God before, beside, besides, or against your trust and devotion to the one who rescues and redeems. The reality is that you and I trust all sorts of things all the time to provide ultimate purpose, meaning, structure, and order. We ask our family to bear this burden. We ask our career. Or perhaps we seek comfort and convenience. Or maybe it's some self-defining event from our past. Or it's a certain hope or dream for our future. You can fill in the blank. We ask all such things from time to time, all such images about the world, about our life, to order and structure our reality. And then, when it inevitably becomes fractured, splintered, and disordered, the funny thing is we ask the very same things to go about picking up the pieces. And the way in which we do this is through images, as I've mentioned already. In other words, we set our attention and our intention, our trust and our devotion, our focus and our faith upon and towards a kind of image which then serves to guide and direct us. It leads us in the course of our life. You might even say that it aims our life in a certain direction because such images sometimes function kind of like a target that we are trying to hit. And then we evaluate our, and judge our life according to the level of accuracy with our aim. 
It has always been this way, in fact. So think about it. In Genesis chapter 3, instead of listening to what God had spoken, to the words of God, instead of relying on the relational reality that was God who spoke with them, talked with them, the scripture says that Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he also ate. Or as Paul tells the Roman church quite a bit later, speaking specifically about the issue of idolatry, he says this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so from the very beginning to this very day, we often exchange the living, personal presence of God for something else, for something not necessarily alive, not necessarily personal, something which lacks real presence, is not present, but only a representation. That is, we often exchange the glory of God, the relationship with God for an image, for a facsimile. Which brings us to our second heading, which is the relationship. So remember last week what we said about words. If you weren't here, what I said was when you and I speak with words, we are not merely sharing information but we are somehow sharing something about our person. We are giving something of ourselves over to another. We are sharing our person with someone else. Jesus says it this way, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And of course, we all understand the relational priority of words. I think we all intuitively understand that in talking with someone for 20 minutes, we would learn more about them as a person than if we had 20 years of looking at their photo. That by actually talking with them, we would come to know them, not merely something about them. Because words go much further toward relationship than images. Because images can't correct us when we get it wrong. The same is true in our interactions with God. When God speaks, he shares something of himself with us. And this is part of what is going on in the second word on Sinai. God is safeguarding us from relating to him in such a shallow, superficial, one-sided way that occurs when all we have is an image to look at. He is inviting us rather into the rich, meaningful, personal interactions that take place between two who communicate in, uh, by the sharing of words. And I think most of us assume uh, that God spoke the Ten Commandments to Moses all by himself in a private conference and then had Moses relay to the Israelites what God had said. So it's this, the, normally the narrative goes, Moses is up there by himself, he gets the Ten Commandments from God, and then he comes down and he shows the Ten Commandments or he gives the Ten Commandments um, to the rest of the people. And of course, there are several instances of Moses doing something like this, where he meets privately with God on the top of Sinai, apart from the people, and then comes down and shares with them what God had said. But I think there is something important about the giving of these particular ten words, of what God here in particular has to say, that might be missed if we don't notice that, in fact, our scriptures suggest that perhaps God spoke these words to everyone, to all the people gathered around Mount Sinai. 
So if you remember in the previous chapter in the story, Exodus 19.9, God tells Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. And then in chapter 20, it begins with, And God spoke all these words, saying, Notice that it doesn't say, And Moses told the people what the Lord had said. And then, interestingly, it is only after the ten words are spoken and given that the people then ask Moses to not let God speak with them lest they die. They were afraid and were trembling, stood far off and said to Moses, You talk, but don't let God speak to us. But this is after God has supposedly spoken the Ten Commandments. And then finally, or actually only then, after this, does God then say to Moses, Go speak to the Israelites and say this. You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. So there's something intimately and intrinsically connected between God speaking and the, the making of images. Because all throughout this narrative and in any other places where this narrative or this story is recalled, um, it's always put together that the people heard God speak, therefore don't make images. And as a final example, listen to how Moses himself recounts the story in Deuteronomy chapter 4. So he's giving a sermon basically on the events of the Exodus in a, in a way. So he says to the people there, Remember how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, that's also known as Sinai, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. And then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, remember he's speaking to all the people, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom, then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly, by making a carved image for yourselves. Now, admittedly, we talked a little bit about this at Gospel Community on Wednesday. Um, I don't want to be too heavy-handed about this. There's some debate about um, who heard what at Mount Sinai among biblical scholars, and people much smarter than me um, have differing views on kind of how this actually played out. But my point is just simply this. For many of us, the image or the picture that we have in our head regarding this story serves as an example of the image or the picture that we rely upon to fill in our understanding of how we imagine God relates with his people. That sometimes the picture we have in our head may not always be entirely accurate. It may be just that, an image. It may be, whether from the influence of a particular theological tradition or education or the influence of certain cultural or societal artifacts and imagination like a movie called The Ten Commandments from 1956 which you should have heard of. It may just be that the images in our head don't actually take account of this personal presence of God who speaks, rescues, and redeems. And it may just be that that is precisely 
what God is trying to guard us against with the second command. Because it may be that when we have a preconceived image, when we have an assumption that's built around a certain picture of God, it may just be that we have simply stopped listening. Which brings us to the other safeguard built into this second word. It says, do not make for yourselves any image. In other words, we are not free to make God in an image of our own liking any more than, say, we're able to make uh, another person into an image of our own liking. You have probably heard this term objectification when it comes to human beings. We hear that we should not objectify people, should not objectify women, should not objectify men. We should not objectify our employees or those that we oversee. And we are not to treat other human beings as objects. But if we think about what this means, we see how it relates to the second commandment. To objectify someone is to reduce them to like a single static image. It is to pause them in a particular moment of time, in a particular instance of usefulness or uselessness, as the case may be, and it is to reduce that person who is of infinite complexity, value, and worth to a single characteristic, a single function, and to diminish their humanity. When we make ourselves an image, or when we make for ourselves an image, which we believe can capture in its totality the dynamic, creative, life-giving, and sustaining personal reality that is this God who rescues and redeems and saves and speaks with us, we do the same thing and we commit the same kind of objectification, only to a much greater degree, obviously. To reduce God to a single image or to attribute, or to reduce God to a single image or attribute is to objectify him. And what this means is that we are not free to simply conjure up images about God based on how we happen to feel or what our current culture happens to tell us or even what our family of origin happened to think as we were growing up. Rather, we must continue to listen to what God says about himself, to the words that he speaks to us. Because in every relationship, when we stop listening to one another, the relationship is in trouble. When we encounter what we find to be, as an example, when we encounter what we find to be a rather kooky way of experiencing God among friends, relatives, um, wherever you happen to see this in the news or the media, when you find a wacky theological perspective that you just don't quite understand, doesn't seem to measure, like, doesn't seem to correspond to what you think you know of God, um, you know, it might just be that that particular way of thinking or way of understanding God um, have crafted a particular image. And they have reduced him to this single characteristic or attribute. And it may just be that they're no longer listening. And alternatively, sometimes it may in fact be you or me that is no longer listening. And so we should continually listen to God, to his words, to his voice, to the various ways he chooses to communicate and share himself with us through scripture, through prayer, through nature perhaps, and in the words we speak with one another. For God is not an object but a personal presence. So what about this whole part about God being jealous? And what about this weird thing about visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation and God being jealous? And what is all this? Well, that will bring us to our final heading, which is the role of the second word. 
So to begin, I think we have to change how we think about this word jealous. Perhaps it's helpful for us to remember, maybe not, I don't know, but etymologically the word zealous and the word jealous are related. So that might help us frame this word jealousy just a bit different. Because God is jealous for us in the same way that we might be jealous for our spouse. First of all, we want them to ourselves. We don't want to share them in a certain way. We don't want to... We don't want them finding satisfaction outside of our covenantal bond. We are jealous for them in a certain way, for their attention and for their affection, and it would be really odd if we weren't. Second, we are jealous for them in the sense that we want what is best for them. We desire their good. We are zealous for it. And of course, the same can be said of God's jealousy. God knows that when our attention and our affection, our trust and our devotion our faith, and our love begins to point itself somewhere other than him, that this is not good for us. So his jealousy co-constitutes itself. It is precisely because he desires our good that he will not share us with any other God. Because again and again, our scriptures will speak to the fact that idols are not good for us. Psalm 115 says it this way, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, uh, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Idols cannot save us. They cannot help us. They cannot rescue us. They do not speak, which is probably why we like them so much, because they won't correct us. They won't rebuke us. They won't tell us when we're wrong or when we're off, because they are deaf, dumb, blind, and mute. They are ultimately powerless and impotent to bring life, to increase life in the ways that God can. They are created things, just like us. and Therefore, they do not have the capacity to rescue and redeem us, not in the way that God can. And as we have said, they may be quite good things, very good things, family, security, success, religious performance even. But when they are asked to do what only God can do, when they are asked to play a part that only God can, when they are asked to take your life and all of your sin upon their shoulders and be crucified in your place, they just simply cannot do it because they are already dead, crushed by the weight of being asked to do what only God can do. And this is why God is jealous. He's jealous not only for your good, but he is jealous for the ways that you ask others to do what only he can do and crush them under the weight of it. For the same reason that any parent who loves their child will guard that child against anything that is not good for them, against any practice, habit, against certain ways of seeing and orienting themselves in the world, Every parent will protect their child against an image of the world that is not good for them or will harm them. Idols shape us. They craft us. They make us in their image more than we realize. We become what we worship. Whatever we place ultimate meaning and value for us, it will inevitably remake us in its image, but it will be corrupted, it will be distorted, ugly, and perhaps even hideous. For if you place your rock-bottom ultimate faith, your hope and your love, 
If you try to suspend your very life on technology, it will make you a machine, mechanical. If you succumb to ideologies that are meant to make the world make sense for you, you will become intolerable. Prideful ambition will make you stubborn and discontented. Entertainment will make you shallow. Consumption will leave you empty. Individualism will leave you lonely. Wealth will make you stingy and greedy. And self-righteousness will leave you unforgiving. And this is why God takes idols so seriously. They impact and influence us more than we often realize. And in fact, they affect us generationally, which brings us to our kind of final point. You and I both know, and sociologists and psychologists have been saying for a long while now, that the rituals, the routines, the ways of doing things, the perspectives and the worldviews, the emotional climate from our family of origin during our childhood are some of the most deeply ingrained characteristics of who we happen to become as adults. If we want to change these characteristics, or if we want to diverge from them, or as, as we become an adult, we realize, hmm, perhaps the emotional climate in my childhood home wasn't exactly healthy. If we desire to change our routines or the ways that we do things, then it will be these particular characteristics that will be the most difficult aspects of ourselves to change. Because nothing is more difficult than trying to overcome the psychological, emotional, and relational formation of your childhood. What we often don't think about, however, are the idols of our childhood home. That is, what kinds of images were crafted in your childhood home? What kinds of idols were there served? That is, what is the center of meaning and value, purpose and significance in your family as you grew up? And if you're a parent now, what about in your home? What images do your children see most often? So what is the role of the second word? In the first place, I think it's a protection and a warning, another safeguard. But we should be clear about this. I don't think it's merely a threat. What we said about the ten words more generally, like what we talked about last week about the creative ten words, is um, still true here. God is simply speaking about the way things are. The idols that we keep have a huge influence on us. These images will alter how entire families and communities see and experience their world. And certain idols will come to influence entire generations of people. If we just think um, of our current kind of social, political, and cultural dysfunctions, that's like one piece of evidence. In other words, idols as I've already said, are quite serious, and God, therefore, is quite serious about them. So, <clears throat> as we're wrapping up, I know this kind of feels heavy, and it may seem like a strange way to kind of come to the close of a message. But we're actually not at the end just yet. Because God also says, if you remember, that he shows love to thousands of generations who love him. So what is the role of the second commandment? It is also a promise and an assurance. The consequences of idolatry, of crafting graven images, may only last a few generations, but God's love lasts thousands. Which is really just a way of saying that it lasts a really, really long time, perhaps forever, as our Psalms will tell us. And this, as you know, is exactly what happens. 
It's not long after God gives these ten words that there at the foot of the mountain, the Israelites would fashion for themselves a golden calf. And they would bow down and they would worship it and they would serve it. They would take their earrings and their gold and their silver and their necklaces and their bracelets and all the wealth that they had acquired and basically stolen from Egypt and they would put it in and they would melt it down and they would make a golden calf. And they would even praise it saying, this is our God, the Lord, who has rescued us from slavery in Egypt. And in our own way and in our own day, we still do this to varying degrees. But the good news and the promise is that God never tires of making his plea of love and he never grows tired and his devotion never wanes and his love never quits and he remains faithful and steadfast even in spite of our idolatry. And each of us know this is true and we can trust that this is true and it deserves our utmost devotion because just as Moses took those words of God which had been written in stone and as he came down and found the golden calf and the idol worship taking place at the base of the mountain, Moses broke those tablets of stone upon their idol, and he roused the Israelites from their betrayal. And then about 1,200 years later, the word of God would be broken on a rough, bloody Roman cross. And that word would be broken and silence in our place. And that word would shatter and silence the idols of this world and every idol that is manufactured in the human heart. And the word of God would have his blood poured out for our sake so that we might have new life in him, have our eyes and our ears open to hear again, to know again this personal presence that is God. And this, our rescuer, our redeemer, Jesus Christ, would call this the new covenant. And so here we have about three minutes or so for you to just kind of personally reflect before we continue in song and communion. So I'm just going to give you about three minutes of silence. We did this last week. Is the slide not coming up? Hammer? So we'll just take about three minutes. I invite you to just spend some time reflecting on these questions. And then after about three minutes, I'll come up and I'll um, pray for us. And then just like last week, we'll have Sam play for just a few minutes. Um, and you can come down and receive the elements. But take them back to your seats. And um, after everyone has communion, we will um, read together. Um, but yeah, just about, I think we have time, yeah, about three or four minutes just to reflect quietly there um, in your chair with you and God. Just reflect on these questions, and then I'll come and close this in prayer in just a moment.